sermon titles are not often easy. <clears throat> so you'll notice I'll be just doing James 1, then James 1b, then 1c, and when we go through chapter 1, and then chapter 2, it'll be 2, and then 2b and c, you know. Uh, that way it'll keep my brain scheduled correctly. James chapter 1, if you would, open your New Testament to this very practical epistle. Follow along, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12 again. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Our prayer is that God would bless these words to our hearts this day. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we'll approach your throne very cautiously this morning, calling as children to their father and asking that you would not only hear these are pleas, but that you would answer them out of your abundance of grace and mercy. We thank you that your word has been a banquet table for your children in ages past. It has been that which we have fed upon ourselves and found to be not only satisfying to our souls, but that which has been necessary. It has brought us to uh, understandings of aspects of life that we hadn't even considered and has brought not only truth to the lost, but it's condemned them too. Thank you, Lord, that it provides unto us uh, a glimpse of what you would have us to learn even as it was penned by James, uh, so long ago, your spirit to be our teacher, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we finished our message last week of verse 4, chapter 1. And as James had provided us with an understanding, and I trust that you were able to glean that, first of all, trials, and trials of various lengths and various severities are part of the life of the Christian. They're part of the life of everybody, but he's specifically talking to them. And that we should joy in them, because they've not only been permitted by a loving God, but they are purposed by a loving God in order to accomplish his will in us. And part of that was 
to see out of patience that we receive from these trials, not only to go through them, but as we'll see today, there's a continuing growth in our relationship, the testing of our faith, bringing about what God's intended purpose was for us. Although we finish with verse 4, that's not the end of the topic. And you can't say, well, I understand everything now, all it is to understand that James has for us about the matters of trials and so forth. So we take up again in verse 5 and continuing in this study. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Now, as we read through this, that again sounds like an unusual place to talk about wisdom. We started out with the matter of trials, and then patience, and then now all of a sudden wisdom. It somehow it just doesn't quite fit together, at least in a cursory reading of what we have. He talks about wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, all the kids are probably back to school by now, and the understanding at least of, of, of their teachers and of parents, and, and I trust a, a lot of young people, is that they're going to gain some knowledge uh, in particular areas of science and of history and of language, of, of the arts and so forth. They're going to pull those things together. And, and for those who are putting in that tuition, not, not the free tuition, by the way, you know, but those who have emphasized that tuition, you know, they, they want a product out. But it's more than just the knowledge of those things, trusting that there's wisdom involved too. It's practical wisdom. It's the application of the things of knowledge into everyday life. So knowledge by itself really doesn't have anything of profit except it's applied. Applying knowledge to its best end and best outcome is wisdom. And so we would pray that our students, as they finish those grades and as they advance to a place of graduation, that they take the things that they've learned and apply them applicably to the various parts of life in order that they may learn properly. James, though, isn't talking about class and students and knowledge Remember, the context of his message here is about trials. So as he presents to us here this mixture of trials and life, he says there's a necessity to bring about wisdom, not knowledge, but bring about wisdom as we're going through periods of trial. And the wisdom that we need is the wisdom of God and not what is often referred to as worldly wisdom or the wisdom of man. It brings about no profit whatsoever. So, when we find ourselves in a time of trial and testing, we need to know, how does God want me to handle this? I can know all types of facts and figures, and all types of Bible verses, and all types of uh, theoretical principles, but how does God want me to apply the things that I have into this situation that I'm going through right now? Does he want me to persevere? Does he want me to take a stand? Am I to wait? Am I to act? What is, what is God's will? I need wisdom on understanding the crisis that I'm going through, godly wisdom. Now, later on in the book of James, he talks about godly wisdom and worldly wisdom, so we'll deal with that more later on. But I think what we have right here for us is good application for us. Don't know what to do in a difficult situation? A trial? 
tribulation, affliction? Ask God. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask of God. Makes sense, doesn't it? It isn't always the outcome. Charles Haddon Spurgeon writes, We are all so ready to go to books, to go to men, to go to ceremonies, and I think if Spurgeon lived today, he would say, to go to the internet, to anything except to God. Consequently, the text does not say, let him ask books, nor ask priests, but let him ask God. It's common sense. Yet our actions are not always following common sense. I can say with all human confidence that we can easily make it a practice of searching out every human resource that is possible, use every avenue known to man, mixed together with some anxiety and and worry, and then come before the throne of grace and ask for wisdom. When faced with difficult challenges or uncertain times, I've often heard people say, well, nothing else, about time we should pray, shouldn't it be? You know, I've exhausted every other resource and it's about time that we pray. My friends, prayer should never be our last resort. It should be our first response in every situation. It should be the first avenue upon which we would seek in every circumstance of life we must realize that we can do nothing apart from Christ. Jesus' own words, and a number of occasions in the New Testament, but this is one in particular, he said, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Ask, seek, knock. Jesus doesn't say, wait till the end, but he says, this is the avenue which has been afforded you as my child, He says, go ahead and do it. Looking at different ways, ask me, speak to me, knock, seek it out. And he says, then you'll find. And so when I do that, seeking wisdom from above because of the trials that I'm facing, what does James promise in that verse 5? Got to look at your Bibles. What does he say? Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. When I ask humbly, when I come to my God and ask humbly, he gives, he answers generously, liberally. Kind of a bad word to mention among you guys, but you know, we'll look at it, a spiritual aspect of it. You know, Generously, God says, I I give to you an answer to prayer. There's a beautiful example of this in 1 Kings 3 during a changing of the guard, uh, not from president to president, but from king to king. And here's a case where David is old and about to go home. Solomon takes over. And I want you to listen to the words of Solomon in this prayer that he has. And again, we're thinking about it in the same context of what James has. When you're facing trials, he says, look to God, act humbly, seek him. Listen to what he says in his prayer. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. 
I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between the good and the bad, for who is able to judge this people, so great a people. Wow. He's in, a, he's in a tight situation. It is not an obvious trial. He's not being attacked by an enemy. But he says, I'm about to take leadership of the people of God. Well, that ought to bring fear to his heart. And it did. And he comes to me, he says, I'm a little child. I don't know how to do the coming in or going out. I'm a servant. And I see this responsibility. How can I judge good and evil, right and wrong, except you be the one to do it. Now, James' response was, ask God, and he what? He gives freely, liberally. Listen to God's answer to the prayer of Solomon. And God said unto him, because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, now you have asked riches for thyself, nor has asked the life of thine enemies, but has asked for thyself to understand, to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there is none like unto thee before thee. Neither shall thee, neither neither after thee shall be any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days." Exactly what James is presenting. God pours out liberally in answer to prayer in times of crisis as we come and humbly seek his face. Lord, I don't know what. And there was only one direction that, that Solomon was pointing. It's to God. Now, I don't think Solomon was a dummy by his own nature. I think he was a pretty smart fellow, you know. But he says, I've got nothing, whatever I have, I've got nothing except you, Lord, be the one to supply that. Let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. And then it says, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Upbraideth. When was the last time you used that word? You know, upbraideth. Even take off the T-H, you know, upbraid somebody. You know, think of doing your hairs. No, 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 it's not like that, you know, upbraiding. God gives generously, but he doesn't make us feel foolish when we ask. He doesn't belittle us. We do that sometimes with people. They come to us and they ask, oh, that's a stupid, don't you know, you know? Don't you understand this? You know? Uh, God isn't like that. Our God never tires of us asking for help and guidance, of leaning on him. He never says, I've got other things to do. Why don't you handle this or take care of it? In the same vein, he isn't offended when we come back and back again. Lord, what do you want to do? 
What will you have me to do? I've asked this again. I don't quite understand. Lord, he says, he abrades us not. He doesn't belittle us, but he generously pours out his love upon us by answering our prayers as we seek his face. Now, look at verse 6. What does it begin with? Kind of a stop sign, doesn't it? But, maybe a yield, you know. But, all that generosity, all of that kindness and grace shown, but he must ask in what? Faith. He must ask in faith. This is the first qualifications, not only that we come to him in faith, but we must also ask in faith. And this is where prayers of many people fail. Oftentimes we never think about a, a, of the attitude of our hearts in prayer. We approach God with a, with a series of, of pious biblical phrases, and he says, well, these are good to say. This makes it sound proper. We toss out this and toss out this, and then we add on to the end of it in Jesus' name, and that solidifies it, and God says, I hear it. Let's answer it. In 1976, came to know the Lord, and, and um, uh, my dad was always one. We were there for prayer meeting, and we were there for churches, and Millie and I and, and Jeff were living with him. He was just a baby at the time. But when Pop says, we're going to church and we're leaving at this time, that meant you better be ready and you go to church, you know. So Wednesday night prayer meeting came, and uh, uh, at the uh, end of prayer meeting, uh, the pastor said, men, we're breaking up into two groups. We're going to this room and this room. Uh, ladies, you usually stayed in the auditorium, you know, and we prayed. And uh, requesting, I got into the, it, where I went was the pastor's study, and there were probably about a dozen of us in there, and they all got on their knees, which I thought, whoo, you know, I'm a, I'm a babe in Christ. This is, this is something. And and pastor says, praise the Lord will lead you. And and I listened to these men pour out their hearts, you know, just come before the throne of grace. And they poured out their hearts, and I hear the voices coming around and around. <laughs> and it's coming up to Keith, and Keith says, no, we're just going to keep my mouth shut, you know, because I don't know the words. I don't know the phrases. And they weren't putting on phrases and words because those are the right thing. They were coming from their hearts. It was, was expressions of their desire to speak to him who loved them first and came to that position. And it was a marvelous picture. Again, a quote from Spurgeon. He says, you know, dear friends, there is a way of praying in which you ask for nothing and get it. You know, just throw out words, not sincerity from the heart and faith, but a matter of just words. He says, no wonder. The heart is far from God, and so the answers to prayer are far from it. Now, the next qualification he gives uh, in this matter of, you know, but let him ask in faith now he gives another qualifications. He says this faith is not to be a wavering faith. That's kind of an easy word to picture, I think, uh, because he follows it up with a, 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 a definition of itself in verse 6. For he that wavereth, means his faith is wavering, his character is wavering, is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. The winds blow east and man goes east. The winds blow north, man goes north. They go south, they soar back and forth. Whatever the waves go, 
the winds go, so the waves go, and so the heart of man, the attitude of man, goes in those same directions. Today I have great faith in God. I'm standing strong in the word. I've got my Bible verses memorized. I can face the enemy and just be courageous, you know. And like Peter, Lord, I'm ready to die with you. Eh. Then the next day comes along, or a couple days later, and all of a sudden, I'm kind of in the quandary. The winds are blowing contrary. My waves of, of doubt are kind of beating against, and then all of a sudden, I don't feel as courageous, and I don't feel as bold, and I start backing up. And much like Peter, oh, I never knew the man. Waves, the winds, life blows contrary, and so we go with it. And James describes this, for let not that man, the man whose heart has no stability, no consistency, no anchoring to the Lord, let not that man think that he should receive anything of the Lord, meaning answers to prayer, and he describes him as a what? A double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. If he can't make this decision in life to anchor his soul on Christ, he says all of his decisions in life are going to be dependent upon where the winds blow, you know, where the things are going. James says that we must ask in sincere faith with a complete trust in God without doubts as to whether I really need his help or not, you know. Uh, again, it comes to the place where I've exhausted all other avenues and then I come and ask them. That's not the case here. This isn't a blank check. Mark chapter eleven twenty four. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that you receive them and ye shall have them. It's not a credit card saying this credit card's empty, go and spend it any way you want. No, there's conditions. Involved. The double minded man has a divided loyalty. He has no solid foundation in God, and the winds blow one way and he goes, the winds blow the other and he goes, and God simply cannot honor that man's prayers because of his heart's direction. Last week I used the illustration of Joseph as a man who illustrates the situation in these first four verses of the book of James. He's a man who was patient in his trials. When his brothers had sold him into slavery in Egypt, it seemed that there was no hope in the horizon. Put yourself in his sandals, as it were, and follow along with him. And then later on, through hard work and ingenuity, in God's hand upon him, Joseph finds himself moved up in the house of Potiphar. And, and it seems all of a sudden that that his hopes are increased, as at least if I'm putting myself in his, in his sandals there. It seems like it's going well along until we find Mrs. Potiphar uh, bringing her attention to him. He refuses her, ans- her advances, and he's unjustly thrown into prison. All of a sudden, those hopes are now dashed, and he finds himself, and Potiphar was actually the chief uh, prison guard, or the owner, in essence, of the responsibilities of all that was in there. So he very well understood what was going on. Yet while in prison, God's hand was upon his life, 
And we read that Joseph was put in charge of the other prisoners. The prison boss um, said this guy is a responsible man and in time he was put in there. We don't know the time, how much had passed, but in time there were two others that were added to the prison. Uh, A a cupbearer, which was a man who was closest to Pharaoh, um, like Nehemiah was uh, in in his book, uh, who tasted the wine and ate the food in order to see that Pharaoh wasn't poisoned. So he was a trusted uh, uh, assistant to Pharaoh. And the other one was the chief baker. As you might know the story, one night both of these men had a dream. By the help of Joseph interpreting the dreams through the hand of God, the answers came about rather easily the next day. The cupbearer's dream meant that in three days he would be restored to his position back in Pharaoh's house. Not a bad jump. Whatever had offended Pharaoh to throw him in prison seemed to be forgotten. But the baker... And I can't imagine how that was for Joseph telling him, in three days you're going to be executed. Three days passed. You know what happened to the baker. But the cupbearer, I can kind of imagine how that picture must have been. Got his little bag of whatever it was ready and coming to the door and he turns to Joseph and he says, don't worry, buddy, you know, because this is what Joseph had told him. But think of me when it shall be with thee to show kindness. I pray thee unto me and make mention of me unto Pharaoh and bring me out of the house. And and as he's going out, don't worry, I'll see you. You know, don't worry, it'll all be good. Gives him the thumbs up. Well, time, and we don't know how many Days, weeks, months had gone by, but you can imagine how Joseph felt because he was forgotten. The cupbearer forgot to mention to Joseph uh, his situation to Pharaoh. Joseph went from the highest hopes to no hope whatsoever, except God alone. Except God alone. I use this illustration because the situation epitomizes the very thing that James is writing about. He brings our heart's attention to it. From the days of his youth until the time he found himself second only to Pharaoh, his life was highlighted by trials and tribulations. Um, The scripture ones that we have and maybe others that were taking place, uh, which kind of, I think, maybe had to add within his heart, asking why? You know, what did I do wrong? Why is this taking place in my life? From the actions of his brothers um, to Pharaoh, the life of disappointments, um, all of these things were there. And interesting, you look at chapters 37 of Genesis through 50, and there's not one mention of stating of the fact that Joseph ever prayed. It doesn't say that Joseph prayed. And yet, at least to that part, if you come to the scripture, you understand, at least in part, that his life was a result of faithful prayer. Let me highlight 
some verses in chapter 39. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. This is in Potiphar's house. Verse 3, and his master saw the Lord was with him. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in his house and in his field. Verse 21, now we've jumped to prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was with him. A life full of ups and downs, of tragedies, of betrayals of his brothers. How would you ever think your own brothers would do that? And then, in essence, I think, kind of a betrayal on behalf of Potiphar. He listened to his wife. Of course, that may have been another story, you know, but he listened to her rather than Joseph, you know. And then in prison, the, 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 the cupbearer dropping the ball. I'll get you out. You know, I've heard it and nothing. And you put it all together through these ups and downs and you glean from this that he wasn't a double-minded man. He approached his relationship with God in faith, sincere faith. And I can't help but believe what he asked for, he asked for sincerely, believing that God knew best. And again, here's somebody, you know, didn't have his Bible to pull out, didn't have his, his little apps on his you know, phone to go through and find out what I'm going to be reading today. It was his regular process of walking with the Lord in very difficult times and trusting that God would do his best. The winds blowing against his soul did not move him from faith. Again, we did not, he didn't understand this roller coaster events that were taking place, but we can be assured that his faith and trust was in the Lord alone. Listen to this. God uses disappointments, trials, tribulations, and even persecutions to bring his servants to a place where their only hope is in him. God uses all of those things which we feel are so burdensome in life. I've got to make choices. I need wisdom about making choices. But he uses them in order to bring us closer to him. Get me away from the world that I'm in, away from all of those other things that I've grown up and I've become attached to, you know, scraping the old barnacles off, and, and, and take me to the Lord. Take me to the Lord. I'm quite sure most all of you recall where you were 21 years ago. Of course, there are some who, who have no clue about that. Jacob, you remember where you were 21 years ago? I doubt it, yeah, yeah. But we all recall that. I think we'd all agree as the days went on, it was quite a trial for those who lost loved ones initially in the attack and for the many who have died because of the fallout. The firemen and the others who are there is all part of this ongoing deluge. It was a trial for our nation. It showed our vulnerability. It made us feel insecure fearful. We could be attacked and we could all die from who knows what. It made us feel what could happen next. I believe it brought people to the reality of death 
And because that many were fearful, they sought some place of solace in religion. God or some other type of thing, it was a, they were driven to that in general. A Pew Research study done last year uh, to, at the 20th anniversary, or released at the 20th anniversary of 9-11, they wrote in part, in the days and weeks after 9-11, most Americans said they were praying more often. In November 2001, 78% said religion's influence in American life was increasing. But more double the share of those said eight months earlier. And, like public trust in federal government, the highest level became that time in four decades. And 16% said that they were attending religious services more now than prior to the attacks. Now, I'm not saying that there was a great Christian revival, that people came to Christ, you know, people were saved, and they surely may have been, and I trust that that has been the case. But it seemed that people felt that they needed to seek God. They needed to find him help and comfort in such a time. They were worried, they were fearful. Regrettably, such a trend has disappeared. It's kind of been wiped off the face of our nation. We as a nation have gone through wars with radical Islam, global pandemics, a critical distrust for our political system, a lack of respect for life, worldwide crisis and gender identity, a disrespect for God-given institution of marriage, and the list can go on and on and on. And in my own heart, I feel that they are much more threatening than somebody coming across in a plane and flying it into a building. And with all that we are facing, it seems that nobody yet feels threatened. Not to the fact that people are driving themselves back to church. we got to seek God because our world is collapsing. Why? Well, there's always manana. I can always deal with it tomorrow. You know? We have the ability to put things off. There's no immediate crisis. It'll be the same tomorrow and I can just deal with it then. But it's always manana. You know? Well, I've got my retirement program. Well... I've got these things that I can rely on in life. We can always vote in new leadership. And boy, this year it's going to be a great year. My team's going to win it all. You know. A positive upbeat. I can just put blinders on and forget what's going on about me, which is destroying those things which are dear and precious to us. Crisis, trials, conflicts, persecutions in one form or another, but I just am not threatened about it because it just doesn't seem I need to do anything right now. We are now answering every crisis, great or small, global or personal, by the wisdom of the world. WPA, Works, Works Progress Administration, Franklin Roosevelt invented that in order to get the nation out of the, uh, the depression and get people back to work. And in essence, and I've been told by people who live through it, he paid people to dig a hole and they paid other people to come and fill the hole again. You know, that's what we're in. We're in a position where we find ourselves threatened by things that are 
that are much more sinister and much more heinous than somebody coming. We can, we, can, we can go through and checkpoints and keep people out of our airplanes and watch our secrets and do all these other things, but there's much more sinister means that are affecting the lives of people. And we just don't seem to be concerned about it. God uses disappointments and trials and tribulations and even persecutions to bring his servants to the place where their only hope is in him. I suggest that we pray. Yeah, we do that all the time, you know. But I think we need to pray in faith. We need to pray without doubting. And to trust God will answer in a way that is his way and his time and according to his way. We don't know what that is. But I think we need to approach life as Joseph did, irrespective of what takes place. I didn't see Joseph complaining, there may have been in the text, to the Midianites as he's pulled out of the hole and sold into the Midianites. Hey, the only reason this has taken place is because my brothers were just jealous of the coat that I got. You know, And the Midianites on their way to Egypt says, we've got to sell this guy, he's just a complainer and complainer, you know. And he gets to Potiphar's house, you know, and he's a nice place, and he works hard, and all of a sudden, you know, it goes on, and the jail, and goes on. You don't read of that. Because it's not there. It's not his nature. We have to realize that what God's given us isn't necessarily a curse, but it's to drive us back to him. Not to answer things with worldly wisdom, but with godly wisdom. Ask him for that. Father, we give you praise for these verses that spoke to the heart of the 12 tribes scattered abroad, those who were suffering tremendously in, in life, um, those who loved the Lord Jesus Christ uh, and were, were experiencing hardship uh, because of that relationship. And the words are here facing us today. Uh, open our eyes, Father, that we might see uh, those things that are taking place and lay upon our hearts the source and the only source upon which we can have a victory, and that's through you. We praise you. We give you praise and honor for the afflictions of life because it brings us to our knees and kicks us off from what we thought we could do by ourselves and release us, Father, to uh, be able to see what you would have us to do. Give us patience as we walk through this process together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.